All right. We're back. It's another episode of the CXM Experience. And as always, uh, I am your host, Grad Khan, uh, CXO, Chief Experience Officer at Sprinkler. And today, uh, as I always love our interview shows, but I am particularly chuffed today, um, I have on today's show, Peter Goldie. Um, Peter will, he'll introduce himself and talk a little bit about his background because I won't be able to do it justice, but he's a category designer. And uh, when I first started at Sprinkler three years ago, one of the very first things I asked everyone on my team to do is to read a book called Play Bigger. Uh, And if you've not read Play Bigger, uh, stop this podcast right now, download it on your Kindle and read it and then come on back and we'll kind of continue from there. I'll just wait a second here. You done? Okay, good. All right. So, um, so Play Bigger is a, a really influential book. It's been out for a few years now, but it's gathering momentum on its influence. And the basic concept of Play Bigger is that brands, products, or companies that define a new category and become the design standard for a new category uh, derive most of the profit from that category. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of things like Gorosky curves and sort of other very interesting concepts, which we'll dig into with Peter. Um, but uh, for now, just uh, this is all about how do you dominate in a category in tech. And it would, I think the biggest influence that Playbiggers had, from my perspective, is really changed the way that VCs invest. And so the principle of Playbigger is that it, for, uh, say, in the dot-com years, uh, someone would invent a category, say eBay, come out with online auctions, and the VCs would rush to invest in a lot of me-toos. So you'd see a lot of secondary companies thinking that they might get gobbled up or they'd grab sort of some sort of secondary market share. Uh, the principles of play bigger are such that VCs now recognize that once there is the dominant design leader in a category, um, there's very little uh, additional profit to be made. So people are doubling down on the leaders and it's changing the investment landscape dramatically uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, but the other thing that's really cool about Peter is that Peter and I went to school together. So Peter is someone I've known most of my life. Um, so since I was 17, I guess. And so um, Peter is a fellow Canadian, uh, lives in the US and California now, um, like myself, I'm just on opposite coast. And um, it's really a fantastic uh, honor to have him on the show today. Welcome, Peter. Hey, thanks, Grad. I am super excited to be here. Well, it's it's really quite amazing, actually, that we're having this conversation. It's funny how life is and how and it's funny how circles inter interweave. Um, but let me let me let you start for a second. Just you know, just do like a capsule history of the Peter Goldie story here. You know, like kind of what was what was your journey from you know. Commerce 85, leather jacket wearing, um, to, you know, sitting in your home in California today. And then just, uh, just give people a sense of your background and experiences and the journey you've been on. Okay. Well, um, for, I don't know, 25 or so years focused on uh, growing software companies, um, in tech and, uh, focused on a, a variety of, um, skill areas. I was doing product management, product marketing, marketing, uh, and then a bunch of exec roles as VPs and GMs and CMOs and and that kind of thing. And I was super lucky to have been involved in in building a couple massive categories uh, that didn't exist. 
And, uh, you know, we can talk about some of those to whatever degree. And then uh, five years ago, uh, I kind of switched from player to coach. And I work on helping leadership teams uh, do this category design process. And, and it was all precipitated by the publishing of the book, Play Bigger. And having worked on one of the stories in the book at Macromedia um, with uh, authors of the book, Al and Chris and Dave, we all worked on this experience campaign to build out uh, Macromedia's presence as evolving from at least the Flash business, evolving from an animation tool to a uh, user experience design tool. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, it is, it is an amazing journey you've been on. It's so cool. It's funny how life so unpredictable. Uh, I remember when you went into tech, I mean, you were, you were early, uh, very inspirational to me, actually. It took me a little while longer to get my courage up to, to leave, but, uh, you were uh, very inspiring to me to kind of get after the thing that you had passion for. So um, so I was, um, I'll just leave you with that for a second, but, uh, let's talk about the Macromedia story because it isn't play bigger. And I think the essence of category design is to, and I mean, correct me if you disagree with me here. Okay. But I think the essence of category design is to almost elevate your company's product or the thing that you're making from the thing it may be doing today to the thing that it may be able to do tomorrow. It's, it's almost like it expands or widens the field of its possibilities. Uh, and that's what it feels like happened at Macromedia. But, you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't on the inside. Tell me what a little bit that was like and what you were trying to do and maybe what inspired you to try to create a new category. What was the impetus to do that in the first place? So when we were working at Macromedia, we had a whole bunch of web tools, Dreamweaver and Cold Fusion and Flash. And what we saw was people were not having great website. Like the user experience was just not good. They weren't using the tools in the best way possible. And um, we saw an opportunity to have both products and standards that would allow for um, a better user experience um, and for companies to basically make more money with their websites. And that was really the impetus for a whole series of activities around experience. And, you know, we had a campaign that everything rolled up into called Experience Matters. Oh yeah, I remember that. And that we focused campaign. on getting our right. products aligned with that. So, so basically you saw a problem, right? You identified a problem. Was there a technology change or leap or something happening that allowed you to more easily address that problem than you could have a few years before? Well, you know, we happen to have a technology that was unique in that, uh, in the Flash platform. And what happens with Flash is we had a very efficient way of transmitting data from the server to the client. Uh, so from the backend servers to the web page. And at the time when it was just uh, basic HTML, there were a lot of issues because imagine back then we don't have fiber mm -hmm. and hoop, super high speed broadband. Um, people are still using modems. The yeah. internet is slower and, you know, web pages would take a long time to load. And we had a technology that made that work a lot more smoothly and a lot more quickly. And the opportunity was to have web pages um, react and load better. And 
also to start to provide multimedia as opposed to you know those old gray pages with the blue and purple links uh, and large text. Or you know I, I think another great example was uh, even just on the pure cost saving side, um, E-Trade was uh, one of uh, Macromedia's clients. And if you can imagine someone's looking at their stock portfolio with Flash, you could put a little widget on the page and it was like a, a direct connection to just the stock data. We don't need to reload that whole page of all kinds of information. We just want that stock price updated. And it could be updating like live in real time with so little data being used and a great customer experience because they're seeing the stock ticker, you know, tick away live instead of sitting there reloading a whole page of hmm. information. Interesting. So there was a technology fit to improve the user experience. And then we just went all in on, well, what else would it take to help companies make more money on the web by improving the user experience? So it was about training. It was about um, deciding on some standards for how UI would work. What would UI look like? Like what, is, what should a video button look like? And then building those things into the products and then making people aware of the opportunity to that you get a business benefit by delivering a better user experience. So we had um, Forrester and IDC and these analyst firms come in and do analysis and do research and look at what happened to companies that delivered a better uh, user experience. And yeah, their websites were more successful and they did more business. You know, the technology we had, we called Rich Internet Application, RIAs. So Did that you, was you part invented of that? this. I didn't realize yeah. that. That's cool. Man. Yeah. In wow. fact, um, I think the term was coined by uh, one of the Alaire brothers uh, who were with Macromedia at the time. And, and then we did a whole campaign around rich internet applications yeah, and that. what they are and the value they provide. And then that layered into uh, the idea of experience design and the idea that instead of just uh, UX designers, you could have experienced designers who are, you know, looking at sort of a bigger picture. And, uh, you know, we, we coined the phrase experienced design. Now, did you talk to me a little bit about the analysts? Now, one thing that's kind of interesting, and I've heard this a couple of times now, and this is not, I'm a massive fan of the analysts and I work very, I've worked very closely with them uh, for a number of years. So I'm, this is not meant to be disparaging in any way, but I have heard that Typically, in category design, uh, analysts are generally a trailing indicator, not a leading indicator, right? Like no analyst had the whatever category Uber's in, you know, ride-hailing services. No analyst had ride-hailing services as a category prior to Uber coming along, right? It makes sense. Right. So how did you, how did that work in your case? And, and did you or were you able to or how did you influence the analyst to then sort of start to recognize experience design as a category? Well, I think at this time, I mean, we knew there was something big that we could make, but the word category design didn't exist at that time. We were just thinking business right. opportunity. <laughs> um, so um, I think, you know, what happens today, it's far more challenging because, you know, back then we said there's this new thing called RIAs. And IDC said, great, we'll write a paper on RIAs. That, that sounds okay. interesting. 
But today, if you're inventing a new category, now that this is a thing and people try and do it, it's actually um, one of the most difficult things about category design, I would say, is getting alignment with the right. analysts because they have now their own interest in creating their categories. Right. Right. So if you go to Gartner, they, you know, they want to name the category and they want their analysts to be the thought leader in the field. They don't want one single vendor to be the thought leader around the category. So it's definitely um, a challenge. And, and we face this with many clients where we create a category name, they go present it to Gartner and Gartner says, no, nah, no, nah, that's not, that's not a category. No, our category is the category. Right, right. And that's where it just takes persistence and aggressive marketing to go build that category in the minds of people. And then if it gets built in the minds of people, the analysts will follow in line at some point, but it could take years and years. Well, so let me, let me step back a tiny bit just for the folks that are listening in, because some people may be um, like really that, that Macromedia story is amazing by the way, but they may be like a little lost if they've not yet read the play bigger book, even though at the very beginning of this, I said very clearly, stop the podcast, read the book and come back. Maybe people didn't do that. Right. And so, uh, so let me just give a, I think one of my favorite stories in the book uh, was the story of Clarence Birdseye, which is when I first read the story. I'm obviously familiar with bird's eye frozen foods. Who isn't, right? It never occurred to me in a million years that bird's eye frozen foods were named after someone named Clarence Birdseye. I just thought bird's eye was something that they made up or something. Right. And there's actually a real person named Clarence Birdseye, turn of the century, like back in the early 1900s. And the way that they described what he did, and then I want to kind of get you to sort of jam on this with me a little bit is that he basically had sort of three ingredients. There was a, an innovation. There was a sort of something new that was, you know, changing the landscape of the country. And then there was a gap, right? So innovation, new gap. And the, the innovation was he was working for the U.S. government um, with a number of people in the north. And he was noticing that when they were fishing, they would pull fish out of the water, throw them on the ice, throw a block of ice on top and flash freeze the fish. And so the whole concept of flash freezing was something that Clarence brought back with him when he moved, came back to New York and started experimenting with flash freezing using liquid nitrogen. Um, but that was essentially invention. The second thing, or innovation, depends how you look at it. The second thing is that at the time, electricity was spreading like wildfire through the, through the world, uh, especially in the United States. And so for the first time, people were starting to have refrigeration and freezing available to them. Obviously, very early days. And it took decades for Clarence to get the full supply chain in exactly the spot you'd want to get in it into. Because when he started, there weren't refrigerated trucks. There weren't refrigerated sections in the grocery stores. People were just getting refrigerators and freezers. So there's a lot of work to be done. But he saw the, he saw the opportunity. He knew that, like Amazon, seeing that the internet is going to be big one day kind of thing. Um, and the third thing is he saw a gap. And the gap is the interesting thing to me, where at the time there was fresh food, which was, you know, delicious, but has limitations in terms of how long it lasts. And then there was canned food, which tastes almost nothing like the actual fresh food, but lasted for a long time. And somewhere between lasting for a long time, but kind of tasting yucky and tasting delicious, but not lasting very long, he saw a gap for frozen food, which was food that tastes very close to fresh, but could last for a long time using this flash freezing innovation. And I thought that was a really crisp way 
of essentially summarizing how he got to a whole brand new category called frozen foods, which is, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a pretty significant component of how people eat food today. So give me some, I'd love your feedback or reaction to the Clarence Birdseye story as well, and just how you've interpreted that. And then, you know, any examples or sort of just jam on this for me for a second, because I think it's an easy way to sort of point to what is category design and what's not category design. Because I, I do happen to see, it does feel sometimes like people are trying to create a category where it's like, come on, that's not really a category. <laughs> You're just naming it that thing. And, uh, and so let's just go on that for a few minutes and see what your reaction to that is. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think on the Clarence Birdseye story, uh, you, you covered it um, very well. And, and it's, I think, you know, one thing that I find most interesting about that story is that part of category design is looking at the whole problem and what it takes mm. to solve the whole problem. And typically, one of the best you know, parts of the process is when you step back and take a look at that, you discover you're not solving the whole problem. And uh, typically a company going through the category design process formally will end up with a altered product plan in one way or another. Interesting. Wow. Um, okay. So that's, that's one of the side benefits and, and parts of, of the process. And I think in the bird's eye example, it's when you look at that whole problem, there's, what you can solve, but then there's the bigger ecosystem of what has to happen around you to support you solving that problem. And that's right. the, the thing that's so interesting about Birdseye is that he had to rally a complete ecosystem. Yeah. He had to get the grocery stores to install the freezers, right? And he had to, had to get the, the trains to install freezer cars. And uh, I mean, it took forever and he went bankrupt. I, I mean, oh, I didn't know that. his whole story, when you go deep on it, it's, it's a very interesting story uh, of, you know, all the failures that he went through. But the idea of um, rallying a whole ecosystem around you to deliver on the needs of customers is, I think, one of the important takeaways of that. That's really interesting. I didn't know he went bankrupt, but he sounds like a total badass. I mean, just to, do, just to take that on, I mean, that is super impressive. I just, I just think that uh, I love, I love people that do that kind of thing that just, it seemed, it must've seemed almost impossible from the perspective of 1910. And, and he was like, yeah, we can pull this off. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> it, 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 his, his story is totally incredible. Um, and then um, your, your further point on category design, you know, is, is it a real category or not a real category? Yeah. I think that's where the magic of category design comes in. I mean, if it's well done, it's a real category. And a real category can be created with words. It's, it's not necessarily about product or brand. If it hangs together and tells a compelling story and it makes sense to customers and investors, then it's a category. And there's no reason, you know, categories can't be subcategories or adjacent categories to existing categories. So, you know, when you think of the, some of the original examples, um, also like from the book, you know, Salesforce, when they were invented, you know, CRM was a category. Right. But cloud CRM, well, that's kind of a different category. That's a, that's right. a spin on CRM and cloud CRM is a huge category. Right, right. You know, we've created a lot of categories where it's really just 
um, using words to differentiate the value you're providing. So for one example, there was a, a company that was in the um, workforce management space and had a time and attendance set of products. So that's punch clocks and, and timesheets and things like that. Yeah. And that's what Gartner would call them, time and attendance vendor. And we said, well, we want to deliver more value to clients than just punch clock time. Um, and we're going to create a new category. And we're going to deliver time intelligence. Oh, interesting. So okay. the category is time intelligence. And when you define time intelligence as, well, that's when a company treats its time as valuable as its money. When you think of your finance departments right. and and everyone counting the money. And then you might want to have time intelligence. And that's a new category of products. So our products that we deliver are going to give you time intelligence. And that's going to help you figure out, are you spending your time wisely? If you have 2,000 employees, you have a million hours at your disposal mm. each year. And are you spending those hours mm. wisely? Right, looking at time as an asset. Yeah, Totally. And um so this company, Replicon, they say they're in the time intelligence category now. And yeah, it's just words. It's made up, but it's meaningful because it's defining the value they provide. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different um, kind of product for customers to buy. It's in its new category. And another interesting thing about that is it, again, led to that idea of, well, what does that mean for your products and services? if you say you're in this bigger, more important category now. So what happens when everybody's trying to create a category? Like eventually you get to some sort of burnout rate on this, right? Like I saw the other day, a car company had a new car and they said, it's a CUV. And my immediate reaction was, no, it's not. <laughs> That's not a thing. Okay? <laughs> you just made that up. It's not a real thing. And I'm not going to, it's a small SUV. That's what that is. It's not a CUV. Okay. And, and I said, what happens when it kind of, there's a burnout on category design? What, what comes after category design? Have you, have you, I'm sure you must think about this all the time. You know, is there, sometimes what happens is the pendulum swings one way and there's value in swinging it back again and then, and catching it on that early part of the arc. Um, any thoughts on that or? I'm sure you've had some beer, beer debates on that with your fellow category designers. The purpose, I mean, down at the core of category design, we haven't really talked about this much yet, is to not be slogging it out with competitors. Because, you know, who wants to enter market space and mm. have 100 competitors and be scrapping for 3% market share? The idea behind category design is if you can... Um, show that you solve the problem successfully and that it's a nuanced or different problem and a different solution than other people are providing, then you have a unique category. And there's the opportunity to have a new category. I mean, there's any, any number of ways you can um, split up the pie of uh, people buying products and services. And if you have your own category that's different than what other people are doing and they want that problem solved, then they have nowhere to go but you. Now, there might be some substitutes that are in very similar adjacent categories, but if they really you know, need to solve the problem 
and and you're solving it for them, then you are mm. the solution. So I, I don't see categories um, going away or people not being able to introduce new ones, except if you do it poorly. Right. Well, it's like the, there's always this accepted wisdom, right? You know, you can't do this or you can't do that. And then someone does it. Uh, so it's like, you know, you can't break the rules unless you break them brilliantly. It's a, a kind of a classic trope in entertainment and in music and stuff like that. One of my favorite examples is uh, on Broadway. And, uh, you know, if I were to go to a producer, uh, let's say, how many years ago would this have been? Maybe six or seven years ago. If I went to a producer six or seven years ago, so, you know, mid 2010, 12, 15, somewhere in that zone. I said, I've got a great idea for a musical. And they're like, okay, what is it? I want to do a musical about 9-11. It'd <laughs> be like, dude, get out of my office right now. Like, right now. Okay, I got people coming in here to get you out of here unless you get out of here like skedaddle, okay? <laughs> and then they did come from away, which actually is, you know, Canadian born in many ways. Uh, and it's brilliant. It's an amazingly brilliant way <laughs> of doing essentially a musical about 9-11, but it's not, it's they're, they're, they brilliantly glance off the side of it and tell essentially a different story, which is about the amazing people in Gander, Newfoundland, um, who, who, you know, there's a very much a human story of caring and love against the backdrop of 9-11, but far enough away that you can actually deal with it right? It's still very emotionally impactful for a lot of people, but you can kind of, you can sort of get there. And so I think that's true in a lot of fields. You know, it's like in medicine, people are constantly being told that's never going to work or that procedure's crazy or that's insane. And then it becomes a standard, right? So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about category design. You're a category designer now. You've been doing this for a long time. You've, you've actually done it, you know, in real, in real space, you know, not just as a consultant, but you actually did it, did it, uh, in real life. And then you've, you know, gotten to, you know, play, play with the play bigger team uh, for a long time. So if I'm a business, there's kind of a bunch of questions that I might have. So let's assume I'm a tech startup of some kind. The first question I'm thinking, and I've invented some technology and I'm thrashing away and I'm, I'm kind of you know, starting to try to get some customers. Um, at what point should I think about engaging in a category design process? You know, kind of what size company am I? Where's my product? That's kind of the first question. And then what I'd like you to do is just take me through once that stage is kind of encountered, then, you know, what, what does it feel like? What's that process feel like? And how long does that take to get to a point where I feel really comfortable about talking about time intelligence, for example? Well, I think, I mean, from a stage standpoint, um, absolutely right away in the, oh, as early as possible. So as early as possible. And, and there's um, a concept in play bigger called the magic triangle which is um, product, company, and category as three points of a triangle, all um, needing to work together at the same time. So the traditional thing that happens is you, you start a tech company and it's all about product. Product market fit, I'm gonna do lean startup, we're gonna you know, search for all of that product thing. And then you think about, okay, what kind of company do we wanna have? Where are we gonna be? What's our culture, all of that. And then categories could be something that you never think about ever, or you think about way down the road. But the opportunity to think about category right out of the gate is to get the company right and the product right to fulfill that category vision that you can create. So I would encourage anyone to st start immediately 
on category design, but that doesn't mean hiring people. You just, you know, read the book. Yep. The, the book's a DIY guy. Right. Uh, you don't need to hire people. Just do that thinking because it's super helpful to set you up to be in the right place. But the um, the process, um, if, if you engage someone to help you with it, is to basically work through six or seven steps of the process of creating the category. And there are deliverables along the way for each of those. And um, nowadays, it would be Zoom workshops. So I just finished up a project that was um, seven Zoom workshops over a four-week period and lots of work in between. And, you know, the stages of category design are digging into the problem. So we spend a workshop, you know, talking with the, the founders and the key folks about what's the problem we're trying to solve, go super deep on the problem, and then start to explore, what, you know, what's the right solution to fit that problem. And if you really get the problem really well-defined, the category name emerges, mm. you figure out mm. what that category is. I mean, it may take brainstorming hundreds and hundreds of names, but you get to a name for the category. And then um, probably the most important, I, I think the cornerstone of the process is something called the point of view, which is the story of the problem we're solving and why we're the right people to solve it and the great outcomes that people get when that problem is solved. So it, it has a story structure to it. It's an emotional story. Uh, it's probably 800 words long, give or take a couple hundred either direction. And it, it gives you the kind of company values, vision, mission, all wrapped up into one um, very compelling story of what you're up to in creating this new category. Cool. What was your lightning strike at Macromedia? It was the Macromedia Experience Forum, and it was our opportunity to go higher up in organizations. You know, we were selling to developers and designers right, historically, right, right, yeah. but we wanted to talk to the CMO and the CEO about the business value of having a better web experience. So uh, it was this whole experience matters piece rolled into a forum. So we hosted a day event. And we got our sales teams going and inviting out the CEOs of their customers and the CMOs and the you know head, heads of design. And we had a big event. And it was a one-day event. Uh, I hired Al Gore as our keynote speaker. Nice, nice. And at the time, he wasn't known for climate. This was one of the first public presentations where he so, talked a bit about climate. What year was this? Um, this would be... Uh, 2005. Oh, so he was just recently, because he was still pretty, Al Gore was still yes. pretty hot then. Okay, all right. That's very cool. Yep. And, but what was interesting about Al as a keynote speaker Oh, Al. Was, oh, hello. Okay. Yeah. My buddy Al. <laughs> you and your buddy Al. That's great. <laughs> um, what was interesting about Vice President Gore. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, was um, he, he had uh, invested in a, uh, a media company called Current. And, and it was a hip new media company and they used Flash as their platform mm. and had a great experience. So that was that's what he was there to talk about um, in theory, although he um, is not someone you can control as a speaker. And he definitely spent a lot of time talking about how to hypnotize chickens on the ranch. And really? Um, that's other, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> he was great. That's great. Um, 
But we also we also had a lineup of other great speakers. We had um, Tim O'Reilly. Yeah, nice. Uh, I know Tim well. O'Reilly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and Tim's a great speaker. He is. Yeah. And extra interesting about Tim was he was in Europe at the time, and we webcasted him in using our uh, technology, which was called Breeze, uh, which was a flash-based video conferencing service, and that was all new at that time. Yeah. Wow. Like video conferencing wasn't, wasn't a big deal. So he presented from Europe and, and that was really cool. And then actually this uh, Forrester analyst, Harley Manning, uh, gave a presentation as well. So we had this great day. We, we had, you know, CEOs in uh, we, and we launched this whole experience design thing and, uh, and it worked out great. That, that's an awesome story. I love the chicken hypnotizing. I gotta, I gotta look into that. So just, um, so let's come back. I wanna come back to category design for a second. And then I want to wrap up with some of your thoughts on the on the end of Flash. So, because I uh, that I heard there were some interesting parties and stuff like that. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. But um, this idea of starting with the problem—you've mentioned this a number of times. Uh, do you find that most companies are not clear on the problem that they're solving, or they're not clear on the the bigger problem that they could solve? Yeah, surprisingly, they're not clear on both of those um, because it's just, you stray away from it. When you get started, it's like, what's, what, what's the problem we're solving? But then it's, it's all focused on what do we have? Yeah. What do we have and how does it work and how can we make it better? Um, and uh, there's not often a look at stepping back at what is the bigger problem. And, and it's just clarity around the problem. Like going that level deeper, you know, in marketing, I mean, it's that classic, what's, what's not the benefit, let's go for the next benefit, the end benefit and the end, end benefit. Right. So it's doing that kind of exercise around the problem and just going that layer deeper. And it usually leads to some great insights or at least clarification of we can, we're solving a bigger problem or a more important problem for people. If I'm on the $25 plan, right? Um, I'm not, but just, you know, if this is theoretical, if I'm on the $25, the $24.99 plan, uh, I've purchased the book and I'm, I'm suspecting that maybe I haven't fully identified my problem. Are there any tricks or exercises or, or sort of thought exercises that I can go through to, to alter my mindset? What I find often in is that, you know, everybody that I work with in this sector super smart, right? Like everyone's they're all, we're working with super smart people all the time. So the barrier is not like an intelligence barrier. The barrier is a mindset barrier, right? We get locked into ways of thinking that we're not even aware of some of the invisible, you know, chains that we've kind of bound ourselves with. Um, so if you're trying to break that mindset and you're trying to get outside your features, your today's product, you know, your today's customers who are screaming at you, all that kind of stuff, you're trying to get to that higher order problem. What would you, how would you coach someone to do that on their own? Well, the technique um, that we use that, that works uh, very well is it's, it's about having multiple people involved. So it's not just your brain. So hmm. um, what we do is we have everyone on a team write out what is the problem that you're solving. Okay. It's a good and, start. Yeah. But then when they do that on their own and you throw up seven people's answers, they're invariably different. And then you get into a robust discussion of the differences and the commonalities. And that's kind of the discussion that leads to a redefinition of the problem. 
And, but it's about the communication side and everyone, you know, sharing their differences of their ideas and the way they view a problem. Um, that's the discussion that leads to a, a better problem definition. That's very cool. Yeah, my, I interview a lot of CMOs on, on the CXM experience. And one of my favorite things is to ask them, what's their definition of marketing? I never had right. a single CMO say the same thing. <laughs> so, all right, so let's, let's, we're, we're on time and you've been incredibly generous with your time. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, but before we wrap, so Flash has been discontinued. Just, you know, what are your feelings around that? Emotions around that? How did, how did you deal with that? What's the, uh, you know, is there a bottle of Jim Bean just out of the camera right now? Like, what, 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 what was the, how do, you, how do you react to something like that when you put so much of your life into something and then it, it happens, as, as happens so often in technology, uh, one day it just simply disappears? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it really was, you know, a meteoric fall uh, that Flash had. I mean, you know, when I was working on the business, we, we got to a billion users. Right. And it was the largest software, you know, largest software footprint on the planet. There was no yeah. software that people had as as, as uh, substantially as Flash. So, it you know, and ultimately, um, I think, um, and and it's kind of covered in the book. You know, Al talks about it a, a bit in the book, the the downfall of Flash and um, some of the mistakes that were made that that caused that. But yeah, for me, it's it's uh, it's definitely emotional. I mean, um, my license plate on my car is Flash MX. Are you serious? That's uh, awesome, yeah. dude. So um, <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> because you know that, that 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 was a big launch for me. So yeah, it, it, it's it's definitely bittersweet. I mean, you know, the technology was not in shape to you know deal with security and and the way things need to now. So um, so that was sad. But you know, it's just uh, it, it's a clear sign to move on. Maybe I you know, need a new license plate now. Uh, well, but, well uh, if it makes you feel any better, there's uh, there's one of the license, there's a number of really great license plates in Seattle, um, often on really nice cars. And um, there's a Ferrari that drives around Seattle and the license plate is HD DVD. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, yeah, right. My favorite though, on another Ferrari, uh, there's another license plate, which is a very nice, this is a, this is a good story. Uh, and the license plate simply says uh, THX, and which is actually stands for thanks. Mm -hmm. So it's THX Bill. Thanks, Bill. Isn't that great? Nice. That's, nice. that's a hot license plate, right? And, and um, I bet there's some good DeLorean license plate. There are some good DeLorean, like a Doc Brown, for example, could be a good example yeah. of a good DeLorean license plate. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. Um, we'll tell that another time. Well, Peter, it's been a real honor having you on today. It's great seeing you again and great catching up. And I'll look forward to seeing you many times more in the near future. For, I'm going to thank Peter for being on the show today and for the CXM experience. I'm Grad Khan, CXO at Sprinkler, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>